Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mission Driven Podcast. I am here with Oliver. He is the Head of Global Product Management at Euromune. So thank you, Oliver, for being here today and, and talking with us about everything from the vaccine to cryptocurrency, which is just so fascinating over this past year. Yes, thank you for, for having me on your podcast. It's a, it's a great day. It's Friday, and I actually have a cat sitting on my lap that makes it even more enjoyable. You don't hear of uh, many people working with cats on laps. So that's great. <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah, helps recouping. So let's jump right into it. The immune response to different vaccines is, is pretty much in the news every day. We heard about young males in, in the States becoming um, ill with an enlarged heart, a temporarily enlarged heart after their second vaccination. Similar things happened with women and blood clotting after their Johnson & Johnson vaccination. I'm vaccinated. I know that you are also vaccinated with something different. So is there a, a best vaccine out there for certain people that they should look for? What, why are people having different immune responses? That's, that's a loaded question. I think one could talk for hours on end on this, but I guess to, to not dumb it down, but distill it to, to the most important aspects, I think we have to differentiate between the, the two forms of the um, launched and an FDA or otherwise regulatory cleared uh, vaccines at this point, right? So you have on the one hand, the, the vector-based vaccines, which is the AstraZeneca and the, the Johnson Johnson. Um, adenovirus-based um, vector vaccines. And on the other hand, you have those mRNAs, uh, mRNA-based vaccines, right? The, from Moderna and also um, in collaboration with um, the German company BioNTech, uh, the Pfizer um, vaccine, right? And, and, and it's known that um, statistically speaking, the mRNA vaccines seem to be outperforming the vector-based vaccines, right? So efficacy with the RNA ones is somewhere in the 90%, at least with the variations that have been um, predominant at the time of the studies, and the vector-based ones are usually sitting anywhere between 60 to 80%. So from a, a efficacy point of view, um, the RNA vaccines were great. But at the same time, it's not all about taking care of your own personal immunity. It always has, you always have to take into account the herd immunity of the entire population, right? So if everyone is vaccinated at an 80% level, uh, you will be fine as a nation, as a country, as a society. Um, that said, in addition to the lower success rate of the um, vector-based vaccines, you can also see an increased risk, especially for women for thrombotic events as a consequence of the vaccination, right? Um, there's a couple theories as to why that happens. It has not been ultimately proven, but it still stands. You have a higher chance of developing a thrombotic event with those vector-based vaccines. Um, I think in general, especially with, with people beyond their 60s, this is not a concern, statistically speaking. I think it's more people in their 20s and 30s where the outcome of a disease might be fairly mild, where you really have to weigh the pros and cons of, of this. That said, if you understand that there's a potential threat for thrombotic event and you understand the symptoms, there is a 90% chance that you walk away with any long-term consequences. So statistically speaking, it would take around 300 million vaccines or so for really 
uh, see a manifestation of, of, a, of a lethal event now with the background that we know what's happening. So overall, mRNA vaccines are more efficient. Um, they have less known side effects, but they are novel. So there might be things down the road, which I don't necessarily foresee. But if you get the chance, um, the best way to go about it is actually um, a heterologous, heterologous uh, vaccination um, scheme, which, which would basically mean uh, get one shot of each. Uh -huh. Because um, as your body basically um, reacts to the vaccination, especially with the vector-based vaccines, it also has an immune response to the actual vector, right? Mm -hmm. So you actually use a virus to bring in information of the coronavirus into the body for it to react. And in the second shot, the body already knows that vector and is also re responding to this, potentially mitigating the, the efficacy. So the best thing you can do actually is get a vector-based shot and an mRNA shot um, in let's say a span of two to three months this would be the best combination but that poses a challenge because not every country would uh, qualify you as, as fully vaccinated at this point right because if you go as per fda guidelines you would have to have two shots from the same vaccine okay. but overall i think um, it was a great success for for the companies to be able to put out vaccines that fast and, and at that rate so I was happy to be able to convince many, many of my people and, and friends that were doubters and a little concerned to go for vaccination. Because as I pointed out, it's not just about you, it's about the entire community and society that you will contribute to taking care of. Yeah. I, I definitely have some non-believers in my friend and family realm that you know I'm, I'm trying to convince them. And some of them are older, some of them are young, but still around older people. And it's important that they they get the vaccine. It's important that they help protect other people. Um, with the 80%, why is 80% such a marker to hit for herd immunity? Um, this depends on the viruses or the, the pathogens you look like, right? Because what you want to accomplish is for a virus or a pathogen not to basically meet enough immune naive individuals that it could use to infect and then just propagate and, 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 and amplify. So this is basically uh, a statistic function and it really depends on how infectious a pathogen is, right? So pathogen, pathogen that would be less um, infectious, you would need significantly less than 80% people, but a very, very infectious or contagious a virus, you you might actually need the 80%. And I think with the initial variations that were predominant at the time of, of the vaccine development, I think we ended up at a number between um, 70 to 75 or 80% of people that need to be vaccinated to have that herd immunity, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is a common thing that we see also with other vaccines, measles and mumps. Yeah. Uh, they're also not 100%, uh, meaning also keep in mind, you cannot vaccinate everyone, right? Immunodeficient uh, people, immunocompromised people. So you will always have those people that will not be A, protected by the vaccine that they got or cannot be vaccinated. So you will always have to make sure that this, this minority is protected. But fortunately, statistically speaking, you basically cut off the ability of the virus to spread if you statistically don't find enough hosts. Right. And with coronavirus, that seems to be the case between 70 to 80% of of um, 
um, um, immunocompetent, vaccinated, and uh, therefore immune people. Yes. So along similar lines, I was reading an article on the NIH website about um, the role of gender and age on immunity. And it seemed as though women had a stronger response to the vaccine, but they also held a larger amount of immunity to, to vaccination, um, whether it's this one or others, just in general, the women hang on to it a little bit longer than the men. Why is that? So there, there's many, many different things going on. The first may be the, the age perspective. Um, as you grow older, your immune system also grows older. And uh, that, that manifests in um, compromised ability to launch certain defense mechanisms, right? So your body is not as capable anymore to produce as many antibodies, to have as many other immune cells that also play a major role in the defense against pathogens. So yeah, you're growing old and so is your immune system. So this is well established that with elderly people or basically as you grow older, um, your immune system will also lose some of its capacities. So this is well described. And this is, this is nothing out of the ordinary mm -hmm. and something that uh, people know about and obviously has to be taken into account. Women in general, that's right. Immune system, uh, an immune system of, of women is significantly more active than the immune system of, a, of an average man. I mean, we're always talking average numbers, right? right. Biology is, is always a function of, of average. There is always an exception to the rule and you will find men with a um, strong immune system than women. But overall, that's true. And this is also the reason why, for instance, and this is maybe now building a bridge to, to what I'm doing, uh, women have a significantly higher rate of autoimmune diseases, right? So that the basic or the base activity of immune system of a woman is always significantly higher. And in case of the contact with a pathogen, this is then again, even more dramatically pronounced uh, as compared to men. Um, why is that the case? I mean, obviously it has a genetic component to it. Um, there's reasons to believe that this is also important when it comes to pregnancy, mm -hmm. to be able to um, protect you and the child at the same time. And for instance, when you take a look at a newborn child, they basically are born for the most part very immune naive, right? They haven't seen any pathogens. And also for the first couple of weeks, actually the antibodies of the mother protect the newborn child because the antibodies can persist for a while. So this is also the reason why in pregnancy, the immune system of a woman goes bonkers because it's hyperactivated. And if you take a look at the, the serology or the antibody profiles of a pregnant woman, we'll find that it oftentimes looks like they have multiple infections while their body's just ramping up the antibody production to yeah. be able to support the child as well. So, um, why is that the case? I mean, obviously it has evolutionary, evolutionary components to it. The very one reason, I don't think there is only one reason, but I think aspects of uh, pregnancy uh, will play or do play a major role in, in the biological differences here as well. That's so interesting. I know that there are some Olympians and athletes, women who try to get pregnant in the off season and have their baby because then also they have um, human growth hormone essentially that help them achieve that next level. Um, so the woman's body is just so incredible <laughs> what we can do. Um, and obviously pushing out a child is also fantastic, um, capability, but it's, uh, it's just interesting also going back to the immunity, how we hang on to it and how we're able to respond to it. So 
Germany, you're in the EU right now, I'm in the United States. We're handling it very different and the rollout of vaccinations and lockdowns and everything. Would you say in, in your professional and human capabilities, what is the best way to do it? Is there a best way if we can go back eight months and, and redo it? That is a that is a good question. It's it's a huge question. I think there is there's no one size fits all scenario, right? You have to take into account, for instance, um, the population, the um, the the availability of an intensive care units, um, the the status of a country whether it can uh, afford vaccination or just ramping up their hospital capacity. So overall, if we compare Germany and the United States, I think in the initial states, Germany was very much at the forefront to play it very cautiously, yeah. which I think initially was the right way to go. Because if you don't know what you're dealing with, you got to make sure that you keep it under control, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in the initial stages, I was, I was very, very fond of how Germany went about this uh, and making sure that we keep it contained as much as possible. And I think that the numbers starting from the, the total um, numbers of infected people, but also the, the death count was, I think Germany did a great job here, right? Um, the United States, and there it also depends on the different states, right? Which, which I understand and at least along the, along the course of, of the, the pandemic also had different approaches to this. I think you have to take into account that in the United States, you have significantly less um, ICU capacities. You have many more people that have um, diseases um, triggered by obesity, things like diabetes. So you have a higher at risk or um, a um, higher population number of people that are um, endangered by, by um, a COVID infection. So it's always important to keep these people safe. The problem obviously is that oftentimes you find those people in those scenarios that they are less privileged. So uh, they can't afford not to go to work or work from the home office because mm -hmm. the jobs they simply do is doesn't allow for it. So I think from that perspective, it is, it is hard to compare Germany and the United States because there's just such a big social, cultural, but also medical difference. Yeah. Um, that said, is there one way to go about it? I think you basically have to go at a speed that you can react to the situation and no one can really forecast what it looks like in a year from now uh, or in the beginning, especially. And this was something that I guess was, was the troublesome part because people wanted to have a clear perspective. But what you actually need to understand is we can only plan ahead a week or two. Um, and at some point, which is where we are in Germany right now, where we basically took care of our at-risk population by means of vaccination, which has always been, if you take a look at it, the main focus, keep those people safe that need to be um, protected because they're old, they're immune deficient, they, all these at-risk groups. Once you took care of them by means of vaccination and so on, I feel that in Germany, we, we should do a better job opening up a little bit more um, at the speed that you do it in America, right? Yeah. Let's see if I friend, a friend in, in, in Georgia, I mean, they live a normal life, right? In Jersey, you, you almost go back to normal. I think as, as, as long as we don't see any major changes with the, with the variants that, that might um, so-called immune escape and make render those vaccines um, obsolete. 
I think we, yeah, we should stop pumping the brakes in Germany. But that said, there is the prevention paradox, right? I mean, you take care of things, they don't happen. And in hindsight, everyone will let you know, yeah, well, dude, you overreacted. Um, so this this is a, it's a double-edged sword. But uh, at this point, I would like Germany to open up things a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, as you were talking, I looked up the death rate in Germany. It's about 90,000. In America, it's 300,000. So it's just interesting. Right. You know, right. it's, it's this, this answers your question to at least in the beginning or um, the early or middle stages of the pandemic that there were some decisions made in America that were not good. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It was 603,000 uh, for America, unfortunately. Yeah, even worse. <laughs> yeah, even worse. Absolutely that. even worse. Yeah. But it's also a larger population of people. Um, and now we're facing issues with immunizing the middle states. Um, they are very averse to getting the vaccine. They, they think it's not scientifically sound. So we're not even near 70% immunity right now, but a large amount of the United States and, and businesses are, are wide open for business. No mask yeah. required, um, no contact tracing anymore. It's, I don't know, maybe too soon, but we'll see. I just want to make one comment here because yes. I, I think this is important for me to prime people in that discussion. This is not about how you feel. This is not about what 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 you're concerned about as a as a as a non-expert. This is not about um, what you think is right. This is really about the science. This is about politics and putting those consequences on all different layers together to into one solution. And you can only live with that if you have the trust in your government, right? And this, I think, is what it comes down. I still have somewhat trust in our government, right? Yeah. But I understand if you lack that trust in the government, then you have a problem. Yeah. But it is science, and the science has to be integrated by politicians to make some strategies out of this. And um, if you build, or if you have the trust in your in your government, you kind of let it happen. This is how I roll at this point. But if you lack that trust, I understand that it's very hard to to ride along. Yeah, absolutely. So my last question on this before we shift to our Bitcoin conversation: What excites you about this field? The the field of immunology, the vaccination or diagnostics. All of it. Why do you do what you okay. do? Okay. Um, the so why am I somewhat knowledgeable on some of the immunity aspects or anybody aspects of things? Because the company Euroimmune that I, that I work for, we are in the field of diagnostics, right? So we basically provide everything along the lines of, of, of um, um, COVID uh, diagnostics, the PCR tests, the, now the rapid tests as well, the antibody tests. And I just find it so interesting to see a body being able to respond to pathogens, right? We have an innate immunity that just launches a general attack, but then we have the the means to basically launch a very specific targeted attack and the body is able to to keep that in the the collective memory of cells and be able to just ramp it up again if you you see the pathogen again. And I find this is such an important aspect to, to prevailing. And um, evolutionary speaking, there's so much going on that this is just so mind-blowing that we're able to defend ourselves so efficiently against pathogens. And then on the other hand, you find that your own immune system can turn against you, which is where autoimmunity comes into play. And I think this is the perfect example where something that is really well designed and does a wonderful job goes rogue. 
Yeah. And I think it's this intersection where you see the benefits, but it's a slim line between immunity and autoimmunity that I find so fascinating and being able to provide um, diagnostic tools to help patients and physicians is something that, that I really think is, is worth the effort that I, that I put into it. Excellent. Great. But on the side, you have a very large affinity and a hobby for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I think for me, it started as it, I think, pretty much does for everyone. Uh, they start in the bull market yeah. at the later end of it, right? And then they, uh, well, you hold the bags <laughs> while the rest cares out. And uh, you just hope that in your first bull run, you don't lose as much. Yeah. And then you learn the next three years as, 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 as cryptocurrencies tend to run in, in, in cycles, basically. Um, one thing I want to point out is that I don't like the term cryptocurrencies, which I think is, is a huge misconception. Mm -hmm. I mean, I personally, I have it right here on the wall, printed out the, the white paper on Bitcoin, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, which uh, was, yes, the original narrative. Um, problem being that cryptocurrencies obviously implies that it is supposed to work as a currency. Right which most of the crypto, and I will call them crypto assets for that, for, that, for, that, for that reason, most of the crypto assets don't aim to work as currency. Mm -hmm. um, and while maybe even Bitcoin at the very beginning of its, in the early day of its um, conception, like uh, as a consequence of the 2009 financial crisis was like a test balloon or the, the first real adopted um, Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer payment system, it turns out it's not being able to do this because if you really do it on a massive scale, it cannot scale as much. So you will most likely with the current system never pay a, a Starbucks coffee with Bitcoin. There's right. space around this with additional layers on, on Bitcoin that you can put on top, but Bitcoin as such has evolved to more like a, a digital gold narrative. Mm -hmm. And there's only very few tokens or coins that coins in that matter um, that work as currency and the currency term always triggers something in people that it's threatening the dollar that's threatening the euro which to some degree it could do as a reserve currency or a basic settlement layer but i just want to call it crypto assets because i want to get the idea out of people's heads that this is currency because most of it is not used as a currency so um yeah i love it <laughs> obviously it's very fascinating so on that note, there's actually a lot of hospitals and other businesses in the United States that become infected with malware. And then the only way to get the malware removed is to pay with Bitcoin. Yeah, so I mean, I got I to gotta, I gotta throw the BS flag because this, this, is, this, is, this is so stupid because you got to understand people are always concerned about money laundering. Yeah. Um, um, and the robbery, uh, blackmailing, all of these things, right? The number one currency you do questionable things in the world with is the US dollar, right? And it's just so easy to point the fingers to, to something that, that now is Bitcoin. But this is, to me, this is, this is part of, I mean, I, I don't think it's a coordinated campaign, but it's, it's very new. People don't really understand it. I mean, the, the FBI just gets hold of someone's Bitcoin and all of a sudden the media is reporting like Bitcoin got hacked. I mean, this is, this is not what happened, right? right. And I understand it. It's, it's super complex in the beginning, but uh, no, uh, this, is, this is negative 
media that do it because they just don't understand it yet. Um, and yeah. I feel, in my opinion, not having owned any Bitcoin in my life, when the minute somebody talks about uh, Bitcoin as the currency for something being held hostage, I, I think they're just trying to make it sexy and sensationalize it. And it's the mystery behind what is a Bitcoin? How do I get one? What if I get hacked? Do I have to figure out how to buy a Bitcoin to pay them? Um, yeah. So it's it's that unknown factor, like you said. They're, yes. they're capitalizing on that. So um, how do you buy a Bitcoin? So personally or like in general? Um, just um, what, is, what is the process for, for somebody okay. that doesn't have any crypto assets? So for the time being, so unless there is a price tag that says, hey, by the way, cryptocurrency people uh, oftentimes uh, like to envision what it's like to buy a Lamborghini with, with a Bitcoin. So it's for the sake of simplicity, let's go with that fast Italian supercar. Unless there is a price tag that gives you US dollar price in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, until we get to that point, um, you will always have to convert fiat money, which is the US dollar, the euro into, into a crypto asset, right? Got it. So this is usually done for people like you and I uh, through cryptocurrency exchanges. They call themselves cryptocurrency exchanges, but I would call them crypto asset exchanges, right? Yeah. If you're a very wealthy person, person, you can do it over the counter, right? Like behind closed doors because you don't want to drive the price up or down but you and i we go through uh crypto exchanges like uh, coinbase i mean coinbase is the most prominent one um they are um, very successful just went public um a couple of months ago right there's others like like jim and i or so but there's a handful of of us based well-trusted crypto exchanges where you basically uh, deposit your us dollars and you can buy your crypto assets, um, which then, quite frankly, is you don't physically own them because there's no Bitcoin like a gold coin, for instance. It is all written down in a public ledger. That is what it does. It keeps perfect track of who keeps how many Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. um, but while you hold it on the exchanges, practically speaking, the exchange holds all the information and you could not just move the Bitcoin as you wish because for that, you would have to get it off the exchanges and into what we, we call like, like a private wallet, which is the equivalent of a wallet where you put money. But yeah, yeah you go through an exchange. There is this point, ex, um, uh, know your customer in place, right? So you, they make sure you know they know who you are and um, it's, it's all legit. And those well-known US based exchanges they they do a great job being able to yeah it's a fiat on-ramp if you will so i'm actually recalling a story that i heard about a, a very wealthy individual that had millions or maybe even billions of dollars in cryptocurrency and cannot remember his password um which i assume is to his private wallet as opposed to the exchange um what do you do in that case besides just jump off a bridge and, and, and this is where um, user friendliness still gets in the way of mass adoption outside of keeping it. I mean, you can pay it on PayPal, right? But you, at this point, you, you still can't move it. This will happen eventually. But um, if you really go that route where you basically self-custody 
um, which is not the right word, by the way. There's so many wrong terms in this in this environment. But if you hold your own personal keys, think of you as an individual. Your own, you are your own bank, right? And you have an asset address for Bitcoin, for instance, which is your public key. You can think of it as an account number, right? And you need your private key, which is basically a very sophisticated pin yep. in order to access those funds. What can happen is if you don't keep it on an exchange, but you keep, move it into your own wallet, you have to have a, a way to remember your private key. These days, you can use hardware wallets that encrypt your private key and you use different ways of accessing those keys. But especially in the very early days when people like, uh, let's say 2013 or so, people mined Bitcoin on their laptop. Back in the day, you could easily do that. It was just very little money people just did it for the fun of it and they never thought it would be like a six digit asset that i think it's going to be very soon right mm -hmm. so they didn't take it very seriously they forgot the private key yeah. um there's no way you can retrieve it yeah it's basically gone. so this I is think. this is why yeah this is why we need more user-friendly applications to enable people interact with their crypto assets in a very safe way so that it takes away the burden of taking care of this couple digit long uh, private key. But this yeah. is this is in the works. 10 years from now, this will be on everyone's cell phone. Very easy. Yeah. You unlock it with the with your fingertip and just use it like, like a credit card, but with less fees and decentralized. Fantastic. And I think the word you just said there was what governments think is a problem, right? Decentralized currency or asset. Well, to, to me, a decentralization is the ultimate goal, mm -hmm. right? Can't tax um, it. Well, we, we got it, but we got to differentiate between a couple of things, right? I mean, people always say Bitcoin is anonymous. Mm -hmm. It is not. It's pseudonymous, meaning you basically have a public key. And trust me, the CIA knows 90% of all the account holders of those, because if you track those interactions, at some point, you can basically just track back yeah. and understand, okay, that person got that Bitcoin from that exchange and this was the interaction. So you can, at some point, especially intelligence services will be able to, to track that. Um, but can, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, every time you sell a Bitcoin, it's a taxable event, right? And if you, if you buy a coffee, maybe at some point in time or a Lamborghini, um, this is a registered event and you will, you will pay your taxes. Yeah. I think tax evasion is, is not the biggest challenge here, um, but it's also a nice narrative, right? Rich people just put their money into Bitcoin, mm -hmm. tax evasion, and yeah, then the roads go nuts and, and, and infrastructure goes down because everyone is, is, is running away with their Bitcoin. But yeah. I think it, tax evasion is one aspect of things, but you have to think about countries like Venezuela, Turkey, Iran. I mean, these people are basically forced to keep their fiat money in the bank account and it is depreciating by the second, basically. Yeah. And having the freedom to convert that money into Bitcoin and have a way to, to memorizing your, your private key or user wallet to, to, to uh, retrieve those is the ultimate level of possession and the ultimate level of freedom because you cannot just take around five kilos of gold on a plane, right? 
that you can, you can do that with a public ledger in Bitcoin. So yeah. it's solving so many more problems than it's causing problems. And Bitcoin yeah. is the first monetary network that is actually sound. You have a set amount of, 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 of units. Mm -hmm. So inflation is not a problem. Uh, so to me, this is the epiphany of coding, solving a real world problem. And yeah. the blockchain obviously is, is the technology behind it. And it will find application way beyond just uh, as a means of exchange. Absolutely. So I you know you touched a bit about where the industry is going 10 years, but where do you think it, it's going in the long term? The besides the technology, the blockchain technology, the other apps and assets that can be utilized, um, where, where is it going? So if you, if, if you, if you ask me to, 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 to paint a, um, to, to draw a painting in 10 years from now, I think um, Bitcoin will have a substantial amount of money captured that would otherwise be captured in gold. So I think the, the, um, the electronic gold narrative, I think, is going to pan out more and more. You will have the blockchain technologies manifested in many aspects that make sense and don't make sense. I think we are still early. I think we, we just uh, just texted before this. And I always I compared the, the, um, the crypto asset space to the internet in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. People didn't really know what to do, make, make of right. it. And then initially people always with new technology, once they kind of start to get it, they overestimate the impact, but in the long term, you always underestimate the impact. So what, what's happening in 10 years, I think we will have um, Bitcoin sitting at a multi-trillion US dollar uh, market cap, uh, capturing uh, many, many people that would have otherwise went into gold, uh, gone into gold. We will have um, decentralized finance, which is a, another big trend, right? We will we'll have fractional shares uh, in a tokenized fashion traded 24-7 yeah. on decentralized exchanges without a middleman. The market maker is a protocol, right? There's, there's, there is no Robin Hood shutting down trading on whatever reasons after GameStop is pushed right. as high or as low as they, someone doesn't want it to be. I'm not, I'm not saying there was manipulation but you know things like that don't happen with a protocol mm -hmm. um i think nfts i think it's overhyped totally the non-fungible tokens which mm -hmm. is a token that tokenizes um for instance rights to a certain ip and um, meaning it's non-fungible means it's, it's a unique and identifiable confirmation that you basically own a digital piece of art you yeah. own um, a collectible, right? I mean, the generation before us, they collected baseball cards like in a physical fashion. I'm pretty sure we've already seen it. Some NFL players put out digital cards. People will go after it. Um, art, just 60 million or 70 million US dollars for just a piece of art. I mean, totally overhyped at this point, but the yeah. idea that you can connect the ownership and tokenize it and basically, for instance, put the rights for indefinite royalties when whenever something is resold into, into the code. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, and we will see application on the level of, of companies mm -hmm. when it's about tracking, for instance, supply chain is a great example. We make it so proof that it, it cannot be forged, that you can keep track of everything um, and have a way to kind of put this in your workflow 
to make sure that it's the safest way possible and potentially even interoperable with other companies that adapt the same protocols, right? So I, I see that coming. So application from companies, NFTs will be around, not as, as insane as they are today. This decentralized finance will be a huge thing. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing banks moving into this space as well. And I think gold will have captured multiple trillions of US dollars. So this, I think, is a future that I've seen 10 years. Okay, that's that's a pretty intense future. <laughs> it, it, it certainly is. And yeah, yeah. This yeah, is I why would... I'm still so excited. I mean, yeah. and uh, you know what? I think it's also a good time not to only think about it in a, in a conceptual way. Personally, I just started coding myself a little bit, trying to understand how all of the technology works. Because I firmly believe that maybe in some time in your professional career, there is application for blockchain technology. And if you're the, the one around that knows a little bit about it, maybe you end up starting your own um, blockchain department in a, in a company. You never know, yeah. right? Yeah. So being, being on top of this at this point is still a very rare, uh, very, very rare thing to find. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, go out there. There's great people on YouTube that, that talk about it in very clear terms. I can um, just recommend, for instance, Andreas um, uh, uh, Antonopoulos. He's a, he's, a, he's a Greek guy, but he has such a clear language and explains it so well that I think everyone who's interested in the future of technology and combines that with monetary aspects has to learn about bitcoin at least bitcoin and then things like ethereum and so on they just yeah. fall into place well yeah i mean it's it, i think maybe still in the pioneering stages it hasn't yet landed anywhere because it's everywhere um yeah. and that's that's great to be self-taught in in blockchain and coding too because you can be that guy in the room that knows a little bit too much to be dangerous in a good way um <laughs> yeah. so that's so true kudos Very for true. you um so, Oliver, how have you used social media for your work or for your Bitcoin research? Yeah, so I think you 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 put it perfectly when you said Bitcoin research because um, especially Twitter has become a tremendous resource for research on on cryptocurrencies. I mean, back in the seventeen or eighteen bull run, there was questionable people that use their name to 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 promote like shit coins as we call it like um, coins or tokens that have no fundamentals they just right. they're just there to get rid uh, get your money yeah. but these days there's so many great analysts that do technical analysis but also fundamental analysis that you can follow and they they put things into 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 great perspective so uh, twitter has actually become a great resource for uh, knowledge um, that that i never thought possible uh, Personally speaking, I don't actively use Twitter, so I'm just a passive user of Twitter. Yeah. But I think Twitter has become just uh, a news a news outlet, a, a, a tool for for um, continued education. So that's great. Mm -hmm. uh, professionally speaking, having was well, still working for a, a, a German company that, that outgrew the. The small to medium-sized entity stage got acquired by Perkin Allen, an American company, in, in 2017. Uh, we, we are 
growing now into a role where we kind of leave behind some of the very conservative ways of, of marketing and marketing communication and only start now seeing the benefit of proper communication and using uh, social media channels, right? I mean, initially it's very easy for, for a diagnostic company or pharma company to use things like uh, LinkedIn, right? It has, has the reputation. You also use it to recruit people, right? So you wanna make sure that you have synergy, synergies there as well, but just with the US subsidiary, but also here in, in Germany, we, we hired a couple of people that have a, um, um, online marketing background, right? So all of a sudden we see uh, a Twitter story, Instagram stuff, where, where you kind of think like, hey, this is really good. This is really good. And oftentimes it's, it's really about getting the word out, educating people, understanding what, what segmentation or what part of your customers would use LinkedIn? Who would be using Twitter or Instagram, right? You, you have to tailor it towards the audience. And it's really see, nice to see things tailored toward those groups. And um, I think our follower numbers, uh, they're increasing and even starting to think aspects like TikTok, which to me still is a black box, frankly speaking. I, I, I'm just afraid to, to, yeah, I think it's too addictive. And uh, to me, I don't know, there's companies that successfully do TikTok that are very professional, very large, and they are in, in similar industries like we are. So apparently there, there is some... Um, incentive to do that so what i want to say is basically we are learning to use that and it's fun to see that panning out and it's fun to see the traction of it and uh, it's not just a gimmick i think it, it is really important to build your brand in a new digital world and come across as the digital player that you want to be perceived uh, so yeah it's great to see that growing that's great i mean you can control the conversation right when you yeah. are putting out your own content, um, it, it leaves little room for wonderment to potential recruits or um, even people that are looking to acquire you. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. My last question, what is your mission and what drives you? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm not sitting here and telling you that I have this, this one mission that has been driving me my entire life or that I have written on the wall or anywhere to tattooed on my legs or so nothing like this but um to me when i when i take a look at, at what drives me in my my personal but also in my my professional life i think it it's to me it's, it's pretty clear that my mission is to enable a mutual two-way understanding in order to promote collaboration and mitigate conflicts or the potential for conflicts and I think this this is what 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 I really see myself doing all the time, and it bears fruits, fortunately, right? Because you can see the impact of it. Comes with a couple pitfalls, right? If it comes with a lot of listening, and if if you if you're able to doubt yourself, um, means it's harder to um, believe that you're right. Right? There's always that little bit more doubt, right? Uh, which makes sometimes negotiation just a little harder. But I, I rather doubt myself um, and make sure that I get closer to the answer. Um, the, I always think the, the answer is in the middle anyway. So by listening to two parties, getting them together, you're very likely to end up somewhere pretty close to where you should end up. Well, so I, I think. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was I was done with my mission statement. <laughs> this made me think. Um, a friend of mine was talking to me yesterday about the horseshoe theory where um, government and everything, there's the, the middle of the road, but then as you get farther out to the far right or the far left, 
they kind of come back to the middle again on the other side of the horseshoe and they're not so different again. Um, because whether you're believing in violence or extremism on one side for one cause, there's another equally opposing violent extreme cause on the other side, potentially. Yes, yes, you know? yes. Um, but I think that's a great mission where you're, you're trying to educate people to come to the middle and compromise and bear the fruits of that long-term instead of opposing one another working together. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for your time and my audience thanks you as well. I will share um, different notes in the, the recording below uh, for people to click on and, and subscribe and, and follow, of course. But thank you again, Oliver. It was my pleasure. And um, yeah, you have a wonderful day and uh, everyone have a great day as well. Just, just listening to this. Thank you.